You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Good morning. See, some people are yelling at me because they know I'll say it again if I don't get a response. (laughs) Uh, Welcome uh, to the Field Church. If it's your first time, I want to say welcome. I'm one of the pastors here at the Field Church. My name is Chad Wiles. We're so grateful to have you. Thank you for coming and celebrating uh, Jesus today with us. And uh, we also are celebrating Memorial Day this weekend. And so, on behalf of that, on behalf of our staff, if you serve in the armed forces or have served, we wanna say thank you for your sacrifice. And if you have, yeah, absolutely. And also, we wanna say if you've lost someone who's faithfully served to protect us, we wanna say thank you for your sacrifice as well because often the families are the ones sacrificing the most. So thank you so much for being here with us today. I get the privilege every week, or every time I get to preach, I should say, in the week leading up, to study and to think about and to ponder on God's word and what he has to say. And so I get to be edified before I ever get a chance to stand up here and and deliver it to you all. And so this week, It was kind of neat to see how God worked that out because as I was praying and as I was thinking through what we're going to talk about today, over the past few months, something's been stirring inside of both Sam and I of just a burden for our church, a burden for our community, a burden for our country. And so as I'm praying and thinking through what I was going to talk about today, I get this text message from Dakota. Anybody know? Everybody knows Dakota. If you're not, he's awesome. He's here somewhere. I can't find him, but he's around. Oh, there he is. <clears throat> it was a sermon from, uh, or an article from Desiring God, and it's called Satan Will Sing You to Sleep. And so I was like, man, that's cool. I love when people send me articles. I want to read it, check it out. And it was speaking directly to something that's been really on my heart as a pastor, and I think fits well with what we're talking about today. And so the article is about an interview with a couple who serves in the Middle East as missionaries. And it's a husband and wife, and and they were talking about the hardships of that and what it takes to do that. And they're spending four hours a day of praying before they ever go out to share the gospel. And one of the things that they have to do for one another before they go out is they have to acknowledge to one another maybe the last time they see each other. Because if you're caught in this country that they are serving in, which, by the way, God's doing a major work there, and a lot of people are coming to the Lord in the middle of this country. If, if the wife gets caught, most likely what will happen to her is she will be imprisoned, tortured, rape will be a part of that torture, and eventually killed. And the reason why they do that is so that they can gather information of other missionaries there in the country. And if the husband's caught... Similarly, he will be 
tortured, imprisoned, and eventually beheaded. And so every day, as they wake up as a married couple, they have to acknowledge this may be the last day, right? Now, that's not the scariest part of this article. So then they get a reprieve. They get to have a month where they come back and they have some time where they get to spend time here in the States. And has a sabbatical and supposed to be a refreshing time and a time of spending time together. And about a month or so in, the wife comes to her husband and begs to go back because it's more dangerous here for her spiritual well-being. Because what she said is America has this thing going on where Satan is literally rocking us to sleep in our comforts, in our prosperity, to where what they were experiencing, the fruit of that time over there, the trial, is that they had to, had to lean on Christ. And the problem is, where we're at now, we don't feel like we have to. And it's easy to be lulled to sleep in your comforts. And so for her, <clears throat> they had really learned how to live in, in the Philippians 1.21 verse, to live as Christ and to die as gain. <clears throat> now, I'm not telling you this to say, in order to be faithful, we need to be in poverty or we need to be tortured. It's not my point. My point is to wake us up to the battle we face. The battle that we are facing is, and we don't even see it, is that this verse is not true of us because of the freedoms and the comforts we get to, to experience every single day. And I'm not, I'm not left out of that. It's easy to forget that Christ should be our treasure because we don't feel like we need him in desperate times and in desperation. We feel like we can kind of do life on our own pretty well, right? I'm well aware of that because I'm standing right here preaching to you all freely without any worry of being arrested, tortured for my faith. So much so there's an officer in the hallway protecting us. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing. I love that. I'm appreciative. But that means internally I need to fight harder to actually make Jesus my treasure. And I cannot allow myself to be lulled to sleep to think that that's reality. Reality is there's a spiritual warfare going on and we're just as much in a hardship and in a time of battle as any other place in the world. We're just not aware of it and that's most dangerous. That's most dangerous. To live as Christ and to die as gain, <clears throat> we would say that that's true of us as Christians, but it's just not. It's just not. If we examine our hearts, it's not. Because, truth be told, we're desperate when something bad happens. We're desperate when we want something from God. But we don't realize our need for him on a daily basis like we should. <clears throat> and so we have to battle. We have to go to war. And it's not to say that then for us to get closer to God, we should move to a mission field. Maybe that is what God wants you to do, but here's what I'm telling you. We're living in the one of the most dangerous mission fields that there is. And we don't even see it. And so my encouragement today as we talk through our sermon on idols, 
is to help us wake up. The reason why every week, week in and week out, Sam stands up here and we walk through the scriptures to expose it and to show you who God is is so that you would see him for who he is and treasure him. And so that you would understand your need to know the word of God and to know Christ. The reason why I take time every six to eight weeks to go over how our heart functions and the idols that we face and how that can get in the way is so that we would know. It's so that we would battle and so that we would not be put to sleep. Because I want us to be a church that that verse is true of us. To live as Christ. That every day that we are thankful for and we're desperate for a relationship and a closeness with our Savior. And that those that we see around us who have no idea about who Jesus is, we would be broken. And we'd be desperate to help them see who Christ is. Because we know eternally there's something that's very dangerous about to happen for them if they, if they don't know him. Right? They will spend an eternity apart from him in hell. And we don't want that. And we want to be ambassadors that help them see that. And we ourselves want to treasure Christ. We ourselves want to passionately reach people for the gospel. We want that to be true. And so I don't want that to be missed today as we talk through idolatry because here's what I want to tell you. The reason why I do these sermons on idols is not for you. It's not for you alone. It's for God's glory and you to be able to see him more clearly. If you're convicted and you see this and you say this is going to be helpful to me, you're kind of missing it. That's secondary to what it's for. It's so that you would worship God alone and Christ alone in doing so. And so I want to be very clear today. And I want to gear us up for the battle that we're in and facing. And I want to wake us up to what's true. No matter where you're at in your faith journey right now. And so before I get started in our actual sermon today, I want to just spend about a, a minute of just silent prayer. For you, yourself, in your seat. No one's watching, no one's looking around. No one needs to hear what you're praying about. But whatever God's saying to you because of what we've just talked about, I pray that you would open your heart to it, repent of it, lay it down, and that you would prepare your heart today to see and know God more. That we would be a beacon on the hill here in this community and in the world that helps people see and wake up to our need and desperation for Christ Jesus. So will you pray for a few moments and then I'll close this out. Father God, I pray that your spirit would move today in our service. I pray that your word would not return void. That you would help us to see individually the areas that we need to grow, to change, to walk with you, to see you, to be desperate for you, to really treasure you above everything else. I pray that that would happen today. I pray you would speak through me, that anything that I would say today would be of you. 
And anything that is of me that is not what you would like for me to say, I pray that it would be easily forgotten. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So now on a lighter note. No. <laughs> uh, we're going to be in the book of James today, chapter 4, James chapter 4. Um, we'll be there uh, once we get to that point. But if you, I just want to let you know now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you use a device, phone, or iPad, or anything else. Or if you don't have anything, we have Bibles outside in the, in the hallway that it's a gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, take it home with you, use it. It's our gift to you. And so we're going to be diving back into our series upon idols. <clears throat> We've been doing that over the past few months, walking through the four motivational idols that we see. We've, we've covered control. We've covered approval. If um, that's something you'd like to, to, to hear about or, or see, you can check it out on our, our podcast. Um, but today we're going to be covering the idol of power. The idol of power. Now, before we get there, I want to do some recap on just idols in general because for some of you who went through all of them, this will just be good review. For others, this is your first time with us or you weren't here the last few times, and so it's important for you to understand how they function before we d dive into to them specifically. And so we want to start about what's the truth about idols? We want to understand how they function. The first thing that we know is idols have something that we want. We know that. Idols have something that we want because we're the ones who make our idols. Because of our pride in our hearts, we're the ones that create these things, so therefore we know that they have something that we want. Whether it be fame, popularity, security, happiness, love, character, well, you, you name it. They have something that we're desiring, that we're wanting for our own lives, and so therefore we're trusting upon them for those things. The second thing we know about idols is that idols promise to give us hope and security that we're looking for. Idols are promising to give us the hope and security that we're looking for. Right? We, we say things to ourselves, if I can just get married, then I won't be lonely anymore. If I could just get that job, I don't have to be worried about security. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to work out if I could just do that. If I could just be a part of this friend group, if I could just join this club, whatever the case may be, it has something that we're looking for for hope and security. But the last and maybe most important point about idolatry is that idols lie to us. Essentially, we lie to ourselves. Because if we create the idols for ourselves, then we're lying to ourselves and not even acknowledging that, right? Idols promise everything, and they take away everything. That's how they function. If I get this relationship, then if I just get married, then if we just have kids, then if we just, and we just keep saying that and saying that until we get to the end of that rope, and it never produced the thing that we thought it was going to produce. The hope, the security, what we're looking for in these things find themselves empty. And at that point, we're, we're trapped, we're enslaved, we continue to destroy. It takes away everything. Most importantly, it takes away our, our love for Christ and the freedom that comes with that. When we put something else or someone else in the place that only Christ is supposed to be as our Lord and Savior and our hope and our identity and our trust, then not only does it destroy us, 
but it completely takes away and separates that, that need for Christ and that communion with Christ and that freedom that comes with Christ. So idols promise everything and they take away everything. So how do they function? How does idols function? Well, we take this from the book Counterfeit Gods. Um, Dr. Tim Keller wrote a great book on this and I think the way he's laid it out is very clear and understandable. Is first, there's deep idols. There's these deep motivational idols that we're talking about that are a result of sin corrupting our deep motivational drives. Power, approval, comfort, or control. These are the things that God has designed us with and put inside of us that are meant to be satisfied in Him that we try to satisfy for ourselves. That desire for control is not abnormal to you, it's natural to you, but it's meant to be found in His control. That desire for approval, for worth, for identity is, is good. It's meant to be found in Him. But we try to seek it for ourselves, right? So then, the second type of idols that we see are the ones that we use to serve those deep motivational idols called surface idols. These are the things that we seek and serve in order to satisfy our deep idols, right? Things like money, a relationship, a spouse, kids, dating, success and business, maybe popularity, fame, whatever you want to put in that place. So if I've got this deep motivational drive of approval, I may use something like money to get to the next social level or status in society. Or I may use it to be very generous with gifts and things to gain some praise. Or I may, I may do some things with it. And so these surface idols serve these deep idols within our life. So with that being the backdrop and understanding that's how idolatry works, let's hone in on the motivational idol of power. Power is a tricky one. Because the idol of power and the idol of controller kind of closely knit together in a sense of they kind of look similar at times, right? But to differentiate, the idol of power is focused on having control over others, where the idol of control is focused on having control over ourselves. Remember when we did the, the sermon on control, it was a lot of like, kind of fear of like maybe going out into public and things to, to protect selves, or maybe it lends itself to maybe an, more of an OCD type personality of making sure everything's organized and straight and orderly within our world to keep us feeling safe. Whereas power is more a lording over or an influence of other people, right? And so they both are a sense of control, but with different functions. So the belief of power is if I am able to control or impact the people around me and kind of like a, a person with a chessboard, kind of making my life safe and neat and orderly in that way when it comes to the people in my life, then I'll be safe, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll have joy, then I'll have peace, then I'll have the things that only the gospel offers, right? That's the belief. The extreme version of this is every supervillain in every movie you've ever seen. Anybody in here a supervillain? No. 
<clears throat> that's the extreme version, right? That's not really how it usually shapes out in our lives, but that would be kind of a caricature of it, if you will. So power is the capacity or ability to direct or influence the behavior of others or the course of events in your life. I think the better way to understand this, although it's helpful to understand the thought process or the belief behind it, is we can understand the belief even more when we see how it fleshes itself out. So let's look at the emotion of power, the feelings, the desires that come along with it. The first major emotion that we see come out when someone struggles with or has this idol of power in their life is the fear of humiliation. Fear of humiliation. It's probably your greatest fear. Being humiliated is your greatest nightmare. Being exposed, being put on display, like just thinking about that, you've got hives right now. So people who struggle with this idol of power can never be wrong, right? You might even talk in circles until you kind of get to where you're trying to go and get what you want. It's not always true, but verbal processing could be a result of this idol. Not always. For you verbal processors, I'm not saying you definitely have this idol. I'm just saying. It could be because when someone's questioning or really calling out maybe something's wrong, you, I mean, I didn't really mean that. What I meant was, well, I didn't really mean that. I meant, and you just keep talking and we keep going until you finally get to, yeah, that's, that's what I meant. I mean, that's what I was saying. Instead of just saying, like, no, nah, I, was, I was wrong. <laughs> but that idea of being exposed, being humiliated, is so unbearable that we do whatever we can to kind of keep that intact, right? Now, usually when someone struggles with this idol, it's from a, a place of something going on in their life or have had something happen in their life. People who've been abused, people who've been bullied, maybe something as, as catastrophic as rape, tend to gravitate to this idol because you know what it feels like to have your power taken away. And so you vow to never let that happen again. That's very understandable. You know what it feels like to have someone else lording over you and taking advantage of you in a way that you didn't give them permission to do. And so in your heart and in your head, I, I can't let that happen again. And so you gravitate towards this for protection. And I want you to hear me say I understand that. I empathize with that. And you've got to understand that what you went through was a result of someone else's sin. And we call that suffering. And there's a way to deal with that. To bring about freedom. We just need to deal with it properly. We have to deal with suffering through forgiveness. Even though that seems so counterintuitive. But that's the only way to bring about freedom. And through resting in the comfort that God provides. But we still have to recognize and repent of the idol of power in our own lives. So our response to that suffering may still be us sending ourselves and keeping people at a distance that has to be dealt with for ourselves. So sometimes working these things out is kind of like unscrambling an egg. It's complicated. It's not just black and white easily done. But what I want to tell you is 
I want to help you with that. So if you're sitting here and thinking like, man, this is true. This is me. This is, I've had some things happen to me. I feel this way. You don't have to do that alone. Come talk to me after. Come talk to my assistant, Laura, and we'll figure out a time to meet and we'll, we'll start working on it. But you, we just need to understand that this happens. This is what happens. And we need to work through that to bring about the freedom and put Christ in his proper place. So fear of humiliation. Second emotion that most likely comes with this is anger. Anger tends to be your response to most things. It tends to be your dominant emotion when you're struggling with this idol of power. You hate being challenged. Don't challenge. Don't challenge me. When somebody questions your authority, you may push back a lot. Or you don't give authority over yourself. You have a hard time giving authority or trusting, even if someone's trying to be helpful. It's tough to trust that or tough to give that away. Especially because people aren't perfect. When things don't go your way, you get mad, you get upset, you get angry. <laughs> She's reading the Bible. I like it. Uh, power is a direct result of pride. We need to understand that. Where this comes from is I am protecting myself or I am God of my life and no one questions God. That's very practically what pridefulness is. That's what we're saying. And it's easy to do. It's easy to do and there's a lot of reasonings we can map out in our own heads for why we should do this or why we can do this or why everyone else is wrong and we're right in doing so. But it's pride. It's not right. Anybody a fan of the Marvel movies, Avengers? Yeah, all right, I've got a few. The first Avengers movie. Captain America yells at Bruce Banner and says, I need you to get angry. And he says, my secret is... I'm always angry. That's right. <laughs> and I use that example because I will be very vulnerable and honest. This is the one that I've struggled with the most in my life. Many of you have heard my testimony. I didn't grow up in a safe home, kind of an abusive environment. So power, like, I gravitate. I can understand. I can empathize very well because this has been me. And so I remember even having that conversation with my wife one time at dinner. I was like, yeah, I kind of like, because people don't realize it because I'm kind of like more of a laid-back personality, but like underneath, it's like there was always like a fire burning, like at any point in time. I just feel like I'm constantly pushing it down, right? So I could relate to the Hulk in that situation. But thankfully, the Lord has worked a lot on my heart in that meantime. Um, but yeah, anger. Anger tends to be the emotion that you most identify with. And if this is you, you should examine that. You should examine that. So if that's how we understand the emotion of power in our lives, what does it look like? How does it come out in action? Well, there's three things that we see here. The action of power. The first thing that we see quite often is success or how we go about success. Because I want to remind you, idols take good things and make them into God things and turn them into evil things. So, success is not bad. A lot of these things that I'm, 
I'm going to point out right now are not bad, but can turn bad very easily. Success being one of those. Because for you, if you're if the idol of power is something that dominates your heart, success is a way to prove to everyone that you're superior. The reason why you work hard, the reason why you, you do what you do is to prove something to everyone that you're the best. Your identity comes from success. Being a workaholic can be a result of the idol of power. Not being able to put it down, not being able to walk away. Because I can't let anybody else get in front of it. I can't let anybody else get ahead of me. I can't. I got to be the, the first, the best, right? And then here's the other side of success. When you are successful, it's easier for you to put on a facade of grace and humility. But when you fail, everything crumbles. When things are going well. When prosperity is happening, ah, oh, I can I can be very gracious. Ah, oh, you everything's good. Ah, oh, don't worry about it. You know, that kind of false humility, you can kind of walk this little air cuz you feel like you're on top of the mountain. Until things start to fall apart, you're not as successful as you wanted to be. And then all of a sudden, a lot of lording over maybe your employees and blame shifting it's your fault and why aren't you doing you know and then all of a sudden that grace that was there goes away and underneath the reality comes out because listen character is always revealed through trials the bible is clear about that james 1 says that we should consider it joy when trials happen because it's for the perseverance and it reveals our character and helps our character grow right when those heat sources in our lives come when we get squeezed a little bit what comes out What's underneath? Because that's what's really there. So we have to ask ourselves, what happens when I don't have the best day? What happens when success doesn't happen the way I thought it should happen? Is my response to lean into to Christ and or is it to come out in these other ways we've talked about, right? Second one's influence. Influence. Oh, sorry, competition. I skipped one. Just keep me on our toes back there. Competition. Once again, I love competition. Not a bad thing, unless you have to win. Emphasis on have to. Healthy competition's good, but when it becomes a need, we got a problem. Right? Because the goal is to prove your dominance. This is from the person in business to the person reliving his glory days on the softball field. It doesn't matter. We've all seen or been the guy or girl that needs to win a little too much, right? There is no cabbage ball championship, right? <laughs> Especially co-ed. There's not a world series of co-ed cabbage ball that we're all working towards, right? But sometimes it can feel like that, right? I love competition. And I've been that guy that's thrown a helmet or two on the baseball field. I've been that guy that doesn't take losing very well. I've been that guy that may have hit a line drive that 
took out a pitcher's knee and celebrated a little bit too much <laughs> in my day. It's not good, but it meant too much to me, right? I know that, and I know that that's a tendency that I could have. I learned this lesson really well early in marriage because my wife has a weird ability to win every card game we ever play. <laughs> she may or may not cheat. That's between her and the Lord. <clears throat> We're in church, so she can't lie, so come ask her if she ever cheats. But, <clears throat> but it's weird. Like, I'm usually pretty good at these things. And if we play ten times, she probably wins nine. And the tenth time, it was I barely won. And it took me a long time. And, and I remember early on us having like arguments and fights. How ridiculous is that over card games? Mostly because I needed to win too much. And I use that as like a funny example, but it's true. Like I'm willing to stand here and say like this, this has been true of me. And I'm thankful that God has revealed that. Because, I mean, it's ridiculous. But it was because there was something bigger going on in my heart. This idol of power had a foothold, right? Last but not least, before we get into how, how do we fix this, is influence. Once again, influence is awesome. It's great. As a leader, influence is a very healthy thing. But it's very dangerous if it's motivated by this idol of power. There's a reason why scripture has a lot of warnings about those who desire to be a pastor or an elder or a leader or a teacher that we have extra accountability, we'll be held more accountable before the Lord one day because God's trying to be gracious to warn us and not, not let us get to those places and manipulate our influence, right? And if this is true of us, we will use our influence to lord over others. We may use others for our own gain. People may feel used by you a lot or all the time. And you keep other people at arm's length a lot. Another thing that you might do is you might manipulate others and manipulate your influence. <clears throat> And it may not come out in a lordship way or a domineering way. It might be a little bit political, a little bit slimy. Because I don't want to be seen as like trying to like, but I may try to get what I want in a way that you might not even see until it's too late. And you just feel a little bit like something's just not right. I don't know. I mean, it seems really nice. Something just doesn't seem right. You know? You may bully people. Or you may control them through fear. It's really easy to do when people's livelihood depend upon your company and you're the boss. It's easy to scare people into doing what you want. Instead of developing them and encouraging them and helping them do better. For their good, not for your gain. Right? So we've got to be careful about all these things. So now that we've thoroughly figured out that we all might be power hungry, 
how do we fix this? That's the real question. We spent all this time uncovering and digging up, and like I said, I do this so that you may have the tools yourself to figure out what's going on in your own heart as a helpful tool to you. But the most helpful thing is, what does God's word say about this? How do we fix this? How do we see this change? Well, the first thing to crush the idol of power is we must be honest with ourselves. And this is true with all idols, but especially true with power idol because when you make yourself, yourself the God of your own world, it's really easy to not see this. It's really easy to manipulate yourself. It's really easy to lie to yourself. Don't do that. Because honesty is the catalyst to humility. And humility is the key to freedom. And we're going to see that through James 4 in just a second. Since the idol of power is predicated on our ability to lord over others, and if you find yourself doing this, you need to repent to the Lord first, but you need to repent to those that you lord over. You got some apologies to make as a start. But this will bring about humility in a way that will be so healthy and so good and help you draw near to the Lord. So, with that being the backdrop, let's get into James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. All of what we've been talking about has been leading us to this point. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. I want to pause there. Because oftentimes we can read into that and say, well, we're just not asking right. He addresses that in a minute. But the thing that this is pointing out is the fruit of your own pride is self-sufficiency. You don't even pray. You don't even ask. That's what James is saying. When your pride is at war within you, and this is, this is the, what your heart looks like, you don't, you don't pray. Your prayer life is a great gauge on your pride. Because you don't feel like you need Christ. You don't feel like you need to come before the Lord every day and seek Him out. See, prayer is a constant state of humility. It's coming before God saying, I need you. It's coming before God saying, you're Lord and I'm not, and I need to know what to do. It's coming before God and saying, you're God. And you've given me access to you through Jesus Christ. I want to I hear from you. That's what prayer is. And so if pride is dominating your heart, you don't do that. Or if you do, the next verse tells us, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. The next question I would have for you is when you do pray, what do you pray about? Is it dominated by things you request constantly in your own life? Do you ever acknowledge God and praise Him for who He is? Or thank Him for what He's done? Or confess your sin before Him? Or is it only God, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need? It's a great gauge in your heart about who's Lord. 
Be careful. Verse 4. James is very kind here. I know it seems counterintuitive. But just like John the Baptist, as we've been learning over the past few weeks, sometimes a harsh rebuke is, is for love because it's trying to wake us up. And just like I referenced early, before we ever got started, we got to wake up. We're asleep. We're deceived. We think we're, we think we're Christians. We think we're following the Lord, and we're not, even, we're not even close to what it looks like to treasure Jesus. And so James says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let that sink in. If you are seeking friendship with the world, if you want success based on the world's terms, if you want approval based on the world's terms, if you want the comforts that our world offers more than you want Jesus, be scared. You should be very scared. Because the word tells us that it makes us an enemy of God. I don't know about you. I do not want to be on that side of it. I do not want to be on that side of it. And I don't want you to be on that side of it either. So therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. This is a reminder of who God is. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember, honesty leads to humility. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He ends with a promise there. That God opposes the proud. Like I said, sink, let that sink in. You're putting yourself in a direct, in direct opposition of God, the one who created all things, the one who does all things, the one who is the author and perfecter of our salvation. For you in this room who's a Christian, you're placing your hope in Jesus, yet you're not making him Lord? What does that mean? What does that mean? I'd be scared of what that means. I know I am. I know that I want to be very careful about my heart because I want, I want the second part. But he shows favor to the humble. He shows grace to the humble. When we resist the devil, remember we talked about earlier, make no mistake, we are in spiritual warfare and Satan is using the comforts and the freedoms that we have every single day to lull us to sleep so that we would be ineffective and distracted. But he tells us if we'll resist, God will draw near to us. And that's a sweet promise. That we, on an everyday basis, get to walk in close communion with our Lord and Savior. Remember what we said earlier on, to live as Christ, to die as gain. To live as Christ. Let it be said about us that we are desperate 
that we would value a close walk with our Lord and Savior that brings about true joy, true peace, true comfort, true power, because He's God. Let us submit ourselves and resist the devil and draw near to God. God wants to restore you, and He restores you through His power. 1 John 1.9 tells us very clearly, if, we're, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we know that because of our sin, we are never going to be holy and perfect. The Bible tells us that. For the ways of sin are death. We know that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. We know that. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. 1 through 3. We know that. But God, being rich in mercy, that He gives us eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the second half of Romans 6.23. That we get to have God, not on our own merit, because of what He did. He lived a perfect life, takes full wrath and punishment on the cross, defeats sin and death in the resurrection on the third day, and for those who would call upon His name and call Him Lord will be saved. It's a promise that we get to have in His power. Remember, this says, and He's jealous over what? Over you? No. Over the Spirit He puts in us. He is the one who has the power to restore. And He gives it freely to those who would make Him Lord and trust Him. That's a good gift. Man, that's exciting. God is the one who has the power to forgive. And we need to embrace his power in our lives. Philippians 2.13 tells us again, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for what? For His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. He created you and His plan for your life is what's best. I heard it said once by John Piper that the safest place that you can be is in the will of God. But sometimes the will of God doesn't look safe. But let's be there. Let's be there. And for us in this room who came today and God drew you here today to hear the message of the gospel, I just want you to know it's a loving message. And that I would challenge you to really contemplate it. And my hope would be that you would place your faith in Christ that's open to you. And if you want to talk afterwards, I'm here. Our other staff are here. Other members are here. To, they'd be happy to talk to you about it. But I'll leave the believers in the room with this. We have the opportunity to use our influence for God and for His glory. And also for the good of other people. And not for our own selfish gain. I hope that today brings about a sense of urgency. I hope today woke us up. I hope today we would be the church that isn't part of the statistic of the American Christian culture, but we would be the ones helping reverse and make a difference. That we would see a genuine love for Christ in our church. That we would truly treasure Jesus. That we'd be known for the ones who spend our time reaching the people in our worlds to give them the opportunity to hear about Jesus. Let that be true. 
and that we would resist the devil and draw near to God. That's my prayer for you today. Will you pray for me? Pray with me, I should say, and for me. <laughs> Father God, I thank you so much for these opportunities we have to come together, to take a pause in life, because it's distracting. And you know this. You know this. You know what's in before us. You know the struggles that we face as believers in our community. You are sovereign over all of it. So God, give us a sense of urgency. Give us a sensitivity to wake up. And let us find our hope and our treasure in you. Let us live with our things in a way that people would know you're our treasure. Let us live with people in a way that they would know you're our treasure. And let us love people in a way that they would see you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.